Welcome to Moments in Leadership. Before I get going with today's episode, there are a few things I want to pass along. First, thanks for all the emails and the DMs in response to me asking to meet with some new potential guests that I can diversify my interviews. I've been put in touch with a few people who are just fantastic candidates, and I'm working on securing them as future episodes. So thank you for taking an interest in helping me diversify the project. Uh, Second, thanks so much for everyone who has helped me share and advocate for this project. As it stands right now, the podcast has been downloaded over 11,800 times. And as I look at the data, it is definitely trending up in popularity. That doesn't happen unless people find value in the project and share it with others. So I want to thank everybody who has helped in that regard. If you're hearing this and you're on any of the social media channels, I'd really appreciate it if you'd follow along on either Instagram or LinkedIn. Those are the two that I'm doing most of my work on. And help me out by sharing any of the episode posts with your followers. I found that's what's really generating the most traffic. My main social media channel is Instagram, and you can find this show and all of the posts there at The Mill Office. Also, thank you to everyone who has taken the time to rate and review the podcast across all the different podcast players. Specifically on Apple, I have 95 total ratings, and 94 of them are five stars, and there's one one star. So whoever gave me the one star, well, fuck you, okay? And I'm not going to beep that out because I just got to be me. On Spotify, I have 72 five-star reviews, and again, I really appreciate that as well. Those are really the two big popular players that I'm seeing from a data perspective. So if you're one of the listeners on there and haven't rated or reviewed the show on either of those players, please take a second and help me out there as well. It's really, it's costless to you, but it's incredibly valuable to this project and drawing awareness to it. I also want to take a moment and make one particular and specific thank you to Justin Kramer, who runs Former Action Guys podcast. Look, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you're familiar with Justin's work and the podcast interviews that he's doing He has been especially helpful to me in helping me think through how to not only start and scale this, but how to continue to grow it as well, in addition to just constantly providing me a lot of encouragement. So Justin, you've become a true friend, and I just want to take a minute to thank you personally on the pod uh, for that. One of the ideas that he came up with and that I've been discussing with him is how to defray some of the costs associated with podcasting. Essentially, what I do is I trade money for time. So, you know, it's not an insignificant hobby, but like any other hobby, I find it worth it and I'm enjoying doing it. And Justin has recently created a Patreon account. So if you haven't seen that, make sure you hit that up and see if throwing a few bucks his way makes sense for some of the perks you'll get off of that uh, subscription on Patreon. And, And I'm also kicking around the idea of starting a Patreon account. I'm thinking about creating some access to subscription-only content, and I haven't really decided on that yet, but I'm kicking the idea around. One of the ideas I'm considering is creating special episodes where I would get two or three different leaders and we would have a roundtable discussion about each episode after it drops. This would allow people to gain some some additional insight into how the leadership lessons discussed in an interview are interpreted and synthesized by the leadership audience I'm aiming to help out in the first place. Sort of like the way Andy Cohen interviews people on his TV show called uh, What's Happening Live with Andy Cohen on Bravo. You'll understand this reference if your significant other makes you watch those shows like The Real Housewives or Below Deck or Summer House. I mean, look, I don't I don't watch them. They're on in the background, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, finally, you may have noticed that I got some new artwork done for the podcast, and I want to thank Ben Cantwell for that. His account on Instagram is Cantwell underscore art. He's got like 30,000 followers and some really great artwork. He was really patient and helpful 
to me in crafting what I think is the perfect piece of artwork for the project. And if you're thinking about getting any artwork done, please hit him up. I had a great experience with him and he was super helpful uh, and also super patient. So thanks, Ben. One thing before we get going, I have to give listeners a little bit of a heads up that around the one minute, I'm sorry, the one hour and 13 minute mark, our interview was disconnected and some of the audio file was lost and there was nothing I could really do to find and fix that one lost minute of audio. So I did my best to stitch it together, but you may find yourself at some point in the interview saying like, whoa, what happened? What just happened there? And that's, you'll, that's it. So Okay, back to the episode. My guest today is Lieutenant General David Furness, who currently serves as the Deputy Commandant for Plans, Policies, and Operations. He was commissioned a second lieutenant on May 16, 1987, upon graduating from Virginia Military Institute, or VMI. Throughout his career, he has served in a variety of command and staff billets in both the operating forces and, of course, the supporting establishments. As a lieutenant, he served as a rifle platoon commander and an 81-millimeter mortar platoon commander in the 2nd Marine Division with 3-4 and 2-8. As a captain and as a major, he served in the 1st Marine Division as the commanding officer of Company K and the operations officer for 3-7. As a lieutenant colonel, he again served in the 1st Marine Division as the G3 plans officer, deputy G3, commanding officer of 1-1, and then as the executive officer of the 1st Marine Regiment. As a colonel, he then went on to command the 1st Marine Regiment And then as a general officer, he commanded Combined Joint Task Force Horn of Africa and the 2nd Marine Division. In the supporting establishment, he served on the staff of the basic school as a staff platoon commander and as a tactics instructor for both the basic officer and the infantry officer's course. And you'll hear me in the interview mention that I was a student there at the same time. He was commanding officer of Recruiting Station Sacramento, California. And as the Director Marine Corps Legislative Liaison Office, United States House of Representatives, as the Director of Expeditionary Warfare School, as the Legislative Assistant to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, and as the Assistant Deputy Commandant for Plans, Policies, and Operations Headquarters, United States Marine Corps. His professional military education includes, of course, the Basic School and the Infantry Officers Course, the United States Army Infantry Officer Advanced Course, the Marine Corps Command and Staff College, the School of Advanced Warfighting, the National War College. He has participated in contingency operations in the Republic of Panama and in the following named operations, Provide Comfort, Unified Assistance, Iraqi Freedom, and Enduring Freedom. His personal decorations include the Defense Superior Service Medal, three Legions of Merit, two Bronze Stars with Combat Distinguishing Device, three Combat Action Ribbons, two Meritorious Service Medals, two Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medals, and the Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal. I think it would be hard to find any other currently serving general officer with as much combat leadership and experience as Lieutenant General Furness. And so with that, sir, welcome to Moments in Leadership. Hey, I'm honored to be here. Thank you. What was Second Lieutenant Dave Furness like? (laughs) And and did he, did Second Lieutenant Dave Furness look anything like Lieutenant General Furness? Physically, maybe, as far as, you know, I I don't, uh, my hairline's a little higher uh, than it was back then, but I'm still wearing my lieutenant uniform, so I mean, I was kind of the same size and scope, so in that respect. But no, I mean, I think an imperfect product from the lieutenant factory. I mean, I did well at the basic school, but you know, there's just you're you're just not a complete product. And so, fortunately, for me, landed in a great organization, Second Battalion, Eighth Marines, and. You know, the company commanders that I had uh, from Captain Joe Valour to Captain Chris Stokes, Captain Mike Dean, 
uh, in my almost you know four and a half years in the the battalion, three deployments, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of good sets and reps that helped develop me along the way. So I think you know coming out of you know I always say you know I was a product of uh, parochial schools and then Virginia Military Institute. So my you know upbringing was rather strict. So I was probably a little bit too arbitrary coming out of the factory. That's just, it was very black and white. And so what you learn uh, in the organization is that you need to be adaptable, flexible, and agile to the day-to-day undertakings of, uh, of the organization. It's just not that black and white. And I think over time, that became apparent. I had great mentorship. My first platoon sergeant really helped develop me. I mean, he viewed his role as helping develop the young officer seriously. I think that's important for staff NCOs. I mean, the lieutenant, you know, he helped the transition from, hey, you've got a lot of great training and education. And, you know, that we, sp- we, we, we spend longer developing the young leader than any other service. In fact, you know, when you, you include OCS and TBS and IOC, it's almost a year that we develop you before we put you in front of uh, a platoon of Marines. And so I think that's, we benefit from that in, in the operational forces of the Marine Corps because the Lieutenant, they know what they're doing. They know what to do. If you link them up with a staff NCO that can help take the book learning and apply it to the day-to-day undertakings of the organization, you know, the tactics, the techniques, the procedures, the everyday leadership challenges, then you, on the backside of that initial tour, you really have a, a well-trained officer of Marines. And I think that's what, uh, you know, that transition happened over those four plus years, I think. Your comments there, sir, are validated in one of my previous podcasts with Sergeant Major Dan Reynolds. He and I had a lengthy conversation about the product that is coming out of TBS and in the infantry, he was an infantry Marine his entire career. And he said that the product coming out of TBS and IOC is top notch, top shelf, an incredible product, that second Lieutenant coming out. But that the challenges that that new second Lieutenant faces is that very first integration with the NCOs, with the staff NCOs, because you just can't replicate that in a platoon of lieutenants. And I'm wondering if you have, any aha moments, any of those crystallizing formative moments from your very first time as a second lieutenant walking into your platoon and that you can share? The obvious ones are, hey, make sure you listen to your NCOs. And that's sort of table stakes. But do you have a good story to share there that could be foundational? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, number one, I checked in. My first battalion was actually 3rd Battalion, 4th Marines. And my first battalion commander was Wayne Rollins, who just recently passed away. So he was a legend. I saw that. Uh, in the Marine Corps. And I was fortunate. He was the sit-up king of the Marine Corps, wasn't he? Didn't he hold the world record for sit-ups? 80,000 bent, continuous bent knee sit-ups. And he was like a superhero, but very great leader. And he said, when I checked in, I'd never forgotten. He said, to be a good Marine officer, you, you must remember three things. Number one, your expertise is the coin of the realm and you have to know what your business because Marines rely on you for their lives and they want to know their officers know what they're doing. Number one. Number two is you have to be physically fit in this organization because you have to lead from the front and um, it's a tough business physically. 
and uh, you need to prepare yourself for that. And then third, he goes, you, you need to listen to and then take care of your NCOs and Marines. And, and they, if you do that, and, and he explained, hey, sometimes it's training them hard. Sometimes it's asking more of them than they believe they can give you. But the, the general, you, you need to be empathetic to their condition, lead them like you would want to be led. And that's the whole, you're kind of a father figure of that organization. And you have to remember that you may be the first positive male role model that a lot of these Marines have ever had in their life and don't lose the opportunity to touch them in that way. And so then you go down to the platoon and my first platoon sergeant was a guy named John Myers who retired as a sergeant major. I was fortunate enough to have him. He brought me in he's, and, and he had been in the company a long time. In fact, he had, he had once been the platoon sergeant for every one of the platoons in the company. And so I was his last lieutenant. And uh, he said, look, sir, I can give you this deal. If you listen to me and consult me on this process, he goes, I guarantee you a couple things. Number one, we'll be the best platoon in this company. And number two, you'll never get your ass chewed. And I'll, I'll, I'll make sure you're well prepared for anything the company commander ever asks you to do. Now, you know, I'm not the brightest tool on the shelf, but I'm like, that's a pretty good deal. So I'll take that. And so what that entailed was a lot of one-on-one, you know, we would go over, hey, this is what the the schedule says we're doing. And he would explain a lot of things that here's why we're doing it. This is why this is important. This is how it reflects back on organizational discipline, individual uh, discipline, and helped me come to understand, you know, how a Marine organization ran itself. And, and the role and responsibilities of staff NCOs and NCOs and what the officer's role was. You know, I, I would say over time, we were together for two deployments because it just the, the, we got back from one, the battalion got disbanded, our company went to 8th Marines because they were building four rifle company battalions and 8th Marines and 1st Marines. And then we were locked on for a MU float, so we just stayed together. And for cohesion reasons, they kept the organization together. So I had the same group of NCOs and him as a staff NCO for, you know, two and a half years. And in that time did two, you know, deployments. So a lot of learning happened there, two different COs, but, and they were very different, but I learned a lot from each one of them. I think my first one, Joe Valour, you know, we went right into a contingency in Panama prior to the invasion they had Marines down there trying to protect key installations in uh, the canal zone before the invasion of Panama the, the next year. And so, you know, we were running live patrols and actually getting in firefights with Panamanian Defense Forces in 88 before the invasion in 89. He had a whole new group of lieutenants, took them into a contingency environment. He was very hands-on. I didn't really understand it at that time. When I became a company commander, it was, uh, okay, I get it. Marines aren't training aides. I got to make sure the lieutenant's doing it right. I don't have time to develop you slowly and watch you stumble, get up, stumble, get up, and then get on to speed. I've, I've got to be a lot more hands-on, not only telling you what to do, but how to do it, and then watching you do it and correcting you while you're doing it. It wasn't always the most enjoyable but because you got real rounds, Marines are getting hurt. You know, one got killed. 
I understand why he did it now. And it, and, it, and again, you're getting good reps and sets by doing it right, you know, so you learn there. And then Captain Chris Stokes really had probably the most impact to me uh, overall, but he, he was really the person who kind of operationalized, you know, commander's intent, the role of the officer in developing training plans, letting NCOs and staff NCOs run the organization so you could command it and teaching you the different, I mean, he taught you all the aspects of officership, writing awards, doing pro cons, writing fit reps, you know, because that's part of taking care of Marines, which, you know, we get a class at the basic school, but it's one of the 10,000 classes you get. You don't really pay attention to it, but those things are important. Telling you the importance of that, but also coaching you along the way on how to train, uh, how to supervise. That was a huge developmental period. And I, I really, I've often said that the, the person that has the greatest impact at least in an infantry officers, it may be other MOSs as well, but I'm an infantry officer first and foremost. In their career is that first company commander that shows them what right looks like. I mean, you got a lot of school knowledge, you've done attacks, you patrol, you know how to do these things, but how to be an officer, how to run an organization, how to lead Marines, you know, that first person is really that you come in contact with, that, that company commander has the greatest impact on how you're going to, your trajectory uh, long-term in the Marine Corps, because it sets you up for either success or it gives you bad examples that you must overcome. And so I was fortunate. I had two really, really good ones. And then my final one, Mike Dean, when I went to weapons company, another very demanding, but very great leader. And so those are the people that kind of launch you. And so I felt that I had great experience coming out of my initial tour with uh, 3, 4, and 2, 8 in the 2nd Marine Division. And I learned a lot of very important lessons that I've never forgotten since then. One of the things in reviewing your bio, it's, it's clear that you've, you've led it platoon, company, battalion, regiment, division level. It's super interesting. And, and I've got some questions coming up about retention that I'd like to just hold off until we get to that topic. But you said something about the company commanders really being a huge impact on a brand new officer's life. And I was the beneficiary of that. I was also the victim of that <laughs> as a Lieutenant. And you can be a victim in a productive way. Like you can, you can have a CO that your personalities don't clash, whatever, but, but there are some things to take away from that. And then you can be the victim of it and truly be just a, a victim of a tyrant or somebody who is just such a, a horrible, horrible leader do you have any suggestions for lieutenants or even captains? Because I guess you could, uh, captains could be dealing with the same thing at the battalion level. I mean, hell, we could probably go all the way up, but you get my point here. No, I'm right. No. Any tips there for, okay, here's how you grin and bear it, or here's how you make the most of a bad situation. Because uh, look, a lot of people listening to this are going to have shitty CEOs. That's just going to be the way it is. Uh, I, I think, again, going back to what we said before we came on about in a battalion, fleet average, uh, so to speak. You're going to have two, sometimes three, if the battalion's lucky, really good company commanders. And then you're going to have maybe an average one and maybe one bad one. If you are the officer that has the bad one, you can learn a lot by watching what not to do. And then understanding that your role, if you're in a leadership environment that's not that positive, I would say 
you know, you got to focus on your Marines. So focus down, be the shield, so to speak, create a culture and environment in your organization that, that you can control, that is productive, positive, beneficial to the Marines where they thrive. You become the shield or, you know, the whipping boy for that, but don't transfer that down. You have to be a man to, to take it, you know, to sit there and take the, the uh, yelling, screaming, kicking trash cans or whatever the, the toxic environment is. Take it. Understand that it's probably wrong. You can see other examples in the battalion talking to your lieutenant buddies that are very positive. This is what my CO does. And you're taking notes, mental or otherwise, on, okay, when I get in that role, I'm going to do it differently. The thing is, you have to also realize that company commands the first time, most, with very few exceptions, it's the first time that officers lead other officers. So, you know, your company commander is probably, you know, he's stressed out trying to lead other officers. Just, just have some empathy for his situation. So if, if they're struggling and not doing it right, you know, be supportive as long as he's not immoral, unethical, or illegal. And then do, like I always say, do your job. You know, do your job the best that you can do. Provide the shield for your Marines to flourish under you. And then understand that that's only going to be there for 18 to 24 months, you're going to get a new leader. And, you know, I'm not going to say I've never worked for, for leaders who were, you know, kind of a little arbitrary and uh, yelled and screamed because I have, but I, I'm also, uh, I've never worked really for a bad one that didn't know what they were doing. So, and I've been in 36 years. So my point is, it's not going to last forever. You can get through it. And even like you said, you can learn a lot from the negative example if you believe, like, I'm not a victim here. This is just a different environment that I'm in. Other Marines have been through it and walked this path too. It would be better to be, you know, in the company led by the wonderful captain in the battalion, but I'm not. And your Marines need great leadership too. So focus down and be that leader for your Marines. That's how you get through it. Yeah. Just, Quick story. I, I, as a lieutenant, ended up in a battery where the battery commander was coming in from the fort shop and he had already been in the battalion for a year and he formerly was a gunnery instructor at Fort Sill. And everybody knew that the combination of his personality and his gunnery instructor background was going to make any lieutenant's life very difficult there. And then to combine that, my personality and, and his were completely different. I just had a different sense of humor than he did. He ended up being one of the two very best battery commanders I ever had. I, you know, judge judging a book by its cover, I learned a really serious lesson there. And uh, he, he ended up being one of my, one of my, the two very best battery commanders I ever had. So sometimes you walk into things and you think it's going to be horrible. And like you said, you stand on your head for 12 to 18 months because something's going to change. Either you're going to move or they are, but it, it could also end up being a really great experience too. So. Yeah. And I think we have to be like exacting and demanding are not toxic. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, just, you know, that's what I think this generation, you know, if you're, well, if you're not having fun and he's not, I can't relate to him, then it's on him. No, 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 no. If you're the junior, it's, there's no personality conflicts, junior to senior. You get along right. with your boss. Okay. And I, my point would be that 
if you don't believe or you would do it different, you just take mental notes. Or if you have a, you know, a notebook that you write lessons learned in and physical ones as well, so that you can remember this and not do those things that you didn't believe were, were terribly beneficial. But a demanding boss that, okay, I don't like this. I got to do a lot of work. Okay. But that person probably makes you a better officer on the backside. It may not be as enjoyable, but hey, we didn't promise you that you're going to enjoy every day. You know, this is a very important profession that you're in. And so sometimes, you know, you get a million, a million dollar education, one nickel at a time. <laughs> and it just depends where that nickel goes in, if you know what I mean. I do. I, I, and I'll share, some, share a recent experience with you too, sir, along the lines of writing things down. I really wish that I had done a better job of, I'm going to just call it a diary, whatever you want to call it. I really wish that I had done a better job of just writing, writing down observations and things like that and keeping a diary. And what reminded me of that was I was recently introduced to a brand new uh, female captain out of logistics MOS out at Camp Lejeune. And she showed me that she started a book on day one and she's, it was like one of those green notebooks that she just wrote number one and started writing things down. And she just writes a number and then writes, and she has this complete book that she can open up and it's like observation number 187. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that was so fascinating. And I just, I look back and I say, God, if I had a time machine, I would go back and write down so many more things I could go back and reference. When I was at the basic school as an instructor, some of the best majors in the Marine Corps were coming in there to be, you know, mm -hmm. senior to the average captain instructor. And I spent a lot of time sitting with them because they had been company commanders. I was going to be a company commander and asking them, you know, lessons learned of, of company command. And I wrote all those down and reflected on them while I was in command of Kilo 37. And they were very beneficial. I don't know where those notebooks are now. You know, right. You got to keep them too, right? <laughs> right. 17 moves. They're somewhere in the garage, uh, in a box someplace. I just don't know where. I'll probably find them when, that, when I die. But uh, you, You'll unpack them someday. You know, over the course of this project, what I've really come to learn is that senior leaders are, are really humble about themselves, and it's really hard to extract the answer to this next question. But can you remember a time in your past where you were you just looked in the mirror and you said, you know, I'm really proud of myself. I did good there. And can you share that? Well, when I came in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps was, you know, just onboarding uh, maneuver warfare, right? So we weren't really trained like that as lieutenants at the basic school. So you get to the fleet, uh, you're in second division where, you know, under Al Gray, who is now the commandant, you know, maneuver warfare was kind of developed. My regimental commander was Ray Smith, who was a big believer in maneuver warfare. And so you're, you're trying to learn how to execute the things that you're reading in Bill Lynn's Maneuver Warfare Handbook or Warfighting FMFM1. And it's hard to grasp a lot of it initially, right? You know, mm -hmm. you, can, you can master the buzzwords pretty quickly, but what does those actually mean and how do I translate those buzzwords into, you know, policies and how I lead and how I execute at the point of contact? So we were on a med float, and we were doing a force-on-force -force exercise in Sierra de Rattan, Spain, I believe. So we had, because we had four rifle companies, the way we would do these things is we'd always land one early to be kind of the op four, and then we'd, you know, because nobody, we were still, nobody knew what to do with the fourth battalion or fourth company, right? So right. we were fighting another company in our battalion, and it was one of these things where, you know, they, you, you hear, 
you know, the concept coup de we, you know, strike of the eye, where the situation clarifies itself, you know exactly what to do. And we were we were doing a movement to contact. It's very undulating uh, terrain. It looks a lot like Camp Pendleton, if you've ever been to Camp Pendleton. Mm-hmm. So scrub, hilly, a lot of compartmentalized movement. So my platoon is the the lead, and we're doing like bounding overwatch movements, right? So I come up on the high ground, I set in, I get a, a the machine gun section to overwatch. The, uh, the rest of the company goes down in the draw and then around the hill that obscures movement. So now I got to move. But as soon as they do that, there's contact, right? Mm-hmm. I can't see the contact, but you can hear it. And I look at the map. And I instantaneously know, I go, okay, that force that's hitting us and running is going to run right here. And we're, I go, we're going to beat them there. I said, and I literally went, follow me. And I, we went running to this future spot and set up and just decimated this entire unit because the situation had just clarified itself. Like I knew exactly what to do. Now, at that point, I'd been a lieutenant. I'm a first lieutenant rifle platoon commander still. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of experience. And it was just one of those things like, okay, this is all starting to make sense to me. So if there's an aha moment, that would probably be it. You know, another one, you know, you're always looking at to be kind of chosen for, you know, positions based on uh, your ability. So like when the battalion commander brought me in and told me I was going to be the 81's platoon commander. And, you know, of course, you know, I said, thank you, sir. You know, that's, that's what I wanted to do. And he said, well, you know why I'm choosing you? I'm, uh, why you're, I'm putting you there, don't you? And I'm like, no, sir. You know? And he said, well, cause you're the best battalion lieutenant in the battalion. And that makes you feel good, whether it's true or not, you know, it's at least in his eyes, it was so that, that was kind of some affirmation that you're you're doing a good job. And a similar feeling when you go to the basic school as an instructor, I was a tactics instructor, and then I was an SPC, and then you get chosen to go across the street to be an IOC instructor. You're an infantry officer. That's kind of the, you know, like, okay, there's a lot of infantry officers here. We're going to pick eight to, to go across and teach all the new infantry officers. So th- those kind of times in your life where you get positive affirmation that you're, uh, you're doing a good job. So continue to do those things. You know, your focus, your passion, your professionalism are leading to good outcomes, I think is uh, gratifying. Yeah. So. I think the takeaway there for a young leader is praise your Marines when they're doing a great job, praise your officers when they're doing a great job. It takes two seconds to do. And I mean, I should be taking my own advice here. And because you just, you just punctuated it right there with when the battalion commander told you you were the best Lieutenant in the battalion, whether you were or not, you're telling that story 36 years later. Well, and you, you want to live up to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really do. I mean, and I would go back to like when Chris Stokes would, he was very, he never yelled. I never heard him raise his voice. But when he would come to you, he would praise you. You know, that was very good, Dave. You know, thank you for, you know, and you wanted to work hard for the, for the man. But when he pulled you aside and said, yeah, I thought, I thought you would do better than this. Mm-hmm. I know you're capable of doing better than this. Man, you talk about something that was a gut punch. Right. You know? And he didn't have to raise his voice to, and then you didn't want to let him down and you knew you had, and you wanted to work doubly hard to make sure that never happened again. I think that's a leadership lesson. I am pretty quick to praise people because 
I like, you know, every, we all like positive affirmation that mm-hmm. we're doing a good job. I've often felt like, you know, the, the, the organization doesn't do it enough. Uh, you know, it's like, hey, you're here to do a job, do your job, you're a Marine. But I, I always go back to something General Dunford said, uh, and this was when he was uh, chief of staff, I think, of the division. He said, and this was in the relation to like awarding people and awards boards and what's the right level of award. And we were struggling with that at the beginning of OIF because we didn't have experience. Like, is this a action, a bronze star? Is it a silver star? Is it a Navy cross? What is it? And he goes, just because everybody is doing amazing things and extraordinary things doesn't make it any less extraordinary. So when people like, hey, they were just doing their job. But the fact that that's extraordinary, you need to recognize that, even though it, because of combat and the, the demands placed on young Marines and all Marines in that situation, and they rise to that occasion, that's still noteworthy and deserving of accolades and recognition. You know what I mean? So I just think, to your point, I, I, I think, you know, Napoleon, that's why he started bringing a war. The guys will, will knock themselves out for a little bit of ribbon. I always tell people, what, you, are you paying for these things? You don't want to give them out? You know, come on, help recognize the young Marines and that they're doing a good job and they'll keep wanting to do a good job. You know, my complaint about the award system is, you know, you look at pictures of our history and, you know, you got, you know, John Bassalone getting the Medal of Honor with the 1st Marine Division about, you know, six weeks after or, or six, within six months of uh, him performing the action surrounded by the guys that he performed the action with. That's the should be the standard. Now, it. An award like that takes two and a half, three years. Yeah. You're sometimes out of the Marine Corps. Your Marines are never around you. It really, and it should be just the opposite with computers and things. And, that, and they were writing these things on the back of C-Ride box and somehow getting the award of the guy in less than six months. I don't know how they did it, but we can't do that now. And that's not progress. Right. I agree with you. I think, just going to wave my magic if I was wand of, if I was the commandant, one of the things I would fix. I would say, battalion commanders, walk around with Navy achievement medals and give them out on the spot. No write-up, no nothing. Just, just start award. Marines don't right. care about the write-up and the summary of action and all that bullshit. They just want to wear the, the Navy achievement medal on their birthday ball uniform. I, so I don't know. I, I, I think I would loosen the rules on that. But, but at the same time, no, the Army gets a little crazy with their awards. There's got to be a happy medium. between, And, and I think what it does, it, it goes back to trust, right? And you have to educate, train, mentor your officers, and then you've got to push authority down to the lowest level possible. For instance, uh, if you're a division commander in combat, you know, like where is the cut line that you can award those things? You know, because everything, you know, bronze star and above are, are, they're all pushed up to the highest stratospheric levels, which means they got to go through about, you know, 10 awards boards to get to the, the guy who can actually sign off and, and, and say, yep, you got that award. And then it, it goes back down to get actually pinned on the person's chest. I just think you ought to streamline that and, and put it at a much lower level. And is there risk there? Yeah, maybe you give out too many. Nah, who cares? I agree, sir. Is there something that the, the emerging leaders who are listening to this can hear you say about the award system so that, that maybe they can start changing that for the better as they ascend in rank? 
Well, I think the the order, if we, I mean, you got 30 days to complete the, like, even for like a NAM, just start adhering to the damn order. Understand the rule, you know, like what the order says and, and, and make the order work. And, you know, I was a person who I never questioned, you know, I, I told my awards boards at, when I was a regimental commander in Afghanistan, it was like, look, you are here to get the award to the approving level. Don't second guess the guy at the point of contact. If you need to help the write up. So company commander, battalion commander wants to give a silver star to some person. You read it. And it's not a still silver star. You know, your job is not to downgrade. Your job is to call him up and say, okay, what else is in there that I'm not seeing that you decided and make this thing get to yes on this? Because obviously he thought that it was a silver star. Now, award boards do good things too. I mean, I, I, we got an award. I can remember uh, a young man in 2-8 who was a Lance Corporal, and his name escapes me now because I'm, I'm just terrible. My memory's gone after all these years. But just did this very... So we're reading it. They bring this thing to me because he was nominated for a bronze star. And I read it. I'm like, oh, man, no, nah, it's, uh, it's more than that. But you don't know how much more, right? So mm-hmm. I recommend an upgrade to a Silver Star because I figured, eh. and then so I send it up to uh, the division. Lou Craparata's there, calls me up. He goes, hey, I'm upgrading this thing to Navy Cross. Wow. Okay, great. You know, you, you're happy for your Marine. So then it goes to, those all go to headquarters back in D.C. That's a Navy, Marine Corps, awards board. When I was L.A. to the commandant, I'm, I was the commandant's representative to that board. By the time I was there, most of the fighting in Afghanistan and all those were done. But we did you know, deal with some uh, valor awards at that level. But that's where it went. And so when it goes there, it gets one headquarters Marine Corps look before it goes into that a pile of awards at the SECNAV award board uh, overseas. And so the, the Sergeant Major Marine Corps goes, no, no, no. This is a Medal of Honor. Oh, wow. So, well, then it takes a two-year Medal of Honor sojourn journey or whatever sure. before it's, no, it's a Navy Cross. And then, so by the time the kid is awarded it, he's a sergeant. So... You know, Secnaf flew to Lejeune. He was still in 2-8. They did it in the base theater. He's up on stage. Great event. But, I mean, that's kind of the, the pace things. I don't know how to speed that up. It would have, that award would have meant so much more. And if you want to encourage behavior that is consistent with this valorous award, then do it in front of people who saw that. And saw like, it happen. Saw it happen. Like, okay. So they know what to do in similar circumstances if they get in themselves. And I think that has the effect that the whole award system is trying to promote, but it needs speed to do that. And I think we could do that with, you know, but we're so worried about, I think, you know, doing, making a mistake and saying something happened that it actually didn't happen in the confusion of combat. And, you know, I can see where, you know, like the Peralta case where, they downgraded a Medal of Honor because they weren't sure that he was alive when he fell on the grenade. And I'm like, well, you weren't sure he wasn't either. Ty goes to the runner, give him the higher award. But, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, after that football player, that Pat Ranger, 
Pat Tillman was killed and then it, it was by friendly fire and that whole ward system went down. I think everybody's gun shy. And so you slow it down to let's do another investigation. Let's do. And all you're doing is, you know, a lot of these awards that at the time the the Marine was out of service and you're mailing it to his home of record. Well, that's not really what this thing is for. And I, that's my that's my problem with it. Yeah. Do you think there's a also a problem in the awards and leadership structure or, or the leadership around the award structure where the perspective exists that, oh, they're not senior enough to get that or yeah. or and, and I'll just quick stories for some context. I was a lieutenant. We we're on a field exercise with 511. I'm standing there in the fire direction center. This ammunition truck drives by. It's on fire. The driver doesn't even know it because he's driving forward. This, so the whole truck is on fire. There's ammunition propellant in the back. Two other Marines and I grab fire extinguishers, run out there. We put the fire out. End of story. I got yelled at for not double bagging the white stuff when we cleaned it all up. Right? That was my award. So I don't know, maybe three or four months later, there was an awards formation. I got a Navy Achievement Medal for it. And, they, and right in the, the write-up, I, I still have it. It says, at great risk to his own personal safety and life, Lieutenant Armstrong and two other Marines ran out from... And so one of my lieutenants looks at my battery commander and says, sir, why didn't he get the Navy Marine Corps medal right. for this? It says right in there. And my battery commander, I'll never forget this. He said to me, he goes, because lieutenants don't get the Navy Marine Corps medal. Right. That's why. Yeah, that's stupid. I, and at the time, I didn't think twice about it. I was like, shit, I got a NAM. That's pretty good for a lieutenant. Right. That's what I thought. <laughs> right, right, right. I had one more NAM than all my other friends. But so I'm wondering, sorry about the quick story there. It's really not about me. I, I, I just wanted some context for it. Do you think that there is, does that still persist? Oh, does that attitude yeah. still persist? And what can we do about it? You can crush it wherever it exists is what you, I mean, again, that only, you just have to stand up for what's right. I would say that the, I might've given you a NAM, but I might've given that kid a, a Navy Marine Corps medal because actually it's more impressive that the junior Marine is taking action than it is. I mean, we, we kind of expect officers to do that. Not that it wasn't meritorious, but the younger Marines, their action being just as quick, they need to, that's the kind of thing that you in, encourage by having a more, I think it's more impressive that the, the junior Marine jumped to that instantaneously than it is the Lieutenant. Yeah. They um, got NAMS too, by the way, just before we get too far off that. Right. But yeah. No. And, and, but my point being, I can tell you a million bad award stories from Afghanistan and Iraq, but again, I had a, a young Marine. Eventually, you know, his silver star was downgraded to a, a bronze star. And for a sergeant, everybody goes, well, he's getting a bronze star. I'm like, but look, read what he did. You know, it's not about his rank. It's about his actions. And, you know, to my mind, I'm, I'm even silver star may have been, you know, too light for what he did. The problem is he didn't get hurt which always, for some reason, helps in the valor award criteria. Right, If yeah. you're wounded, wounded during it, it means more, apparently. So I, I, I do have, I, I think we should, you look at what the Marine does, I think it's more impressive when junior Marines rise to the occasion and you ought to reward them with a more senior award. Here's a, one example, we can get off awards. But I took over, uh, we assumed command of the AO for RCT-1, the previous RTT leaves a day later, the entire energy, like the, the electricity grid that supplied the power to all the servers and the switches and all the stuff that ran the command and control for Helmand province was sitting in Camp Dwyer. So I, I was responsible for it or, or RCT1 was. Well, 
we have a, a power spike, generators go down, power goes down, it's a hundred and bejesus outside. And so all of this computer stuff, which is in a tent, doesn't take kindly to increase temperatures, right? And so switches don't have batteries. All this stuff starts to go down and could have been catastrophic. It would have taken months to recover. Had it not been for a corporal who, you know, we had civilian tech reps there and he's like, get out of the way. And he basically saved the day. So I hear this and I'm like, I, I want to give that kid, you know, so I wanted to give him like a bronze star because if you had a corporal save the day yeah. in, in a firefight, that might have been what he got. But everybody's like, yeah, you know. And so basically I wanted to give him an award. So the highest award I could give him was a Navy comm, but I gave him a Navy comm, you know. And I just pulled him in and I said, you know, thank God we have Marines and sailors like you in this organization, because without your action, I can't command and control and probably wouldn't be able to for months the way I had done, you know, computer, you know, chat rooms, the way this thing was set up to operate. We would have been down for a long, long time. You prevented that valorous action and because people were telling you, don't do it. And you said, no, this is what needs to be done. And he did it anyway. And it worked. And we saved the day there. So I just think, again, people were saying, he's just a corporal. Well, I don't care. Yeah. You know, uh, shouldn't matter. It's, it's interesting because you just took a lot of pride in telling that story. It, it, if every commander became a facilitator of awards rather than a keeper of the awards, like you said, it's not, yeah. it's your job to figure out how to upgrade it. It's not your job to downgrade it. I think if more people took that perspective on yeah, things, I mean, I, it that's probably ties back into retention too, which I, I have a question coming up on retention. <laughs> right. I promise I've got that. Yeah, so yeah. just changing gears a little bit, and this is an odd question, but the answers are always really instructive. Do you recall a moment, because I know you've got a lot of combat time. Do you recall a moment in your career where, where you were really scared? I don't mean frightened. I mean scared. And how can you use this example to help young leaders prepare for those inevitable moments that we all go through? I would say the first time in the shoot, I was scared uh, in Panama. But what got me through it was, I mean, I always say you fall back on your training. And what the training was is that what is the requirement of officers at the point of contact? And so you just start worrying more about failure and that you worry more about not living up to that ideal and that you, you just focus on the task at hand and get you through that. It doesn't mean you're not scared, but I can remember feeling like I'm like 24 years old and I'm not ready to leave this earth yet. And then you got to be like, hey, I can't think about me. It's about the organization. It's about the Marines. Start doing your job. And it just clicked in and, and it, you know, you got through it. And then when it was done, it was like, you know, you kind of get the shakes a little bit. Holy shit, that, uh, that was kind of harrowing. And then after that, uh, I always tell Marines that the more prepared you are, and part of the reason that I think I was fearful is that it was your, I mean, I was like literally third or fourth week in the fleet, and I'm, I'm in this situation. Like, I didn't have a lot of experience yet, but I had a lot of training. And so you fall back on your training. And so always tell Marines, like, you, you got to inoc your, inoculate yourself by your preparation. And part of that as an officer is you, 
is why I'm such a big believer in you know professional development reading. You know, you've got to prepare your mind for what you're going to be feeling, the situations that you will be presented with in combat. And you do that by, there's a 5,000 year recorded history of the profession. You read it and you understand that nothing you're feeling at that moment is unique. It's been felt by people for multiple millennia and that you can get through it by these actions. So preparing yourself cognitively, physically, you can't, like I said, you, you can't, the PT is important. We can poo-poo it, but you got to be physically ready to do some of this stuff. You will be presented with, you know, kind of superhuman strength where you can stay up for 36 hours and you don't get tired because it's adrenaline. And then afterwards, it's like you can't stay awake because you, it leaves you and then you're exhausted. So there's a physical attribute to it. But, the, but preparing yourself as far as what your unit is going to be tasked to do, what you will be asked to do in the context of employing or fighting your organization. You know, so the training matters. And the better trained you are, the more confident you are. The more confident you are and those resilient bonds of cohesion between members of the organization, everybody will be scared, but everybody's confident that they're prepared enough to get through that. And if they just do their job, everything will turn out okay. And so I think it, what I would tell, and I tell young officers, look, you're going to be scared. If you're not, you're kind of you know, I got to worry about you the other way. You're either a psychopath or a fool. We don't need either one. So yes, fear will be part of that. You get through it by your obligation. The fact that you've been trained well to do a job, focus on the job, focus on your Marines, do your job. And I think that's how you get through situations like that. And the more of them that you're faced with, the less concerned you are, because like it's really about the organization, not about you. And, you know, it's such a fickle, like I've had Marines right beside me killed and why wasn't it me? I don't know. And so you just stop worrying about it because you can't control it. You just do your job, focus on the task, focus on being the best leader in that situation. And you learn what kind of leader you need to be by all the things that you've read about great Marine or American leaders in the past and what they did and how they handled certain uh, situations. And you try to live up to that high standard. And I think that helps you get through it. And I think the Marine Corps, where we are different, is we spend a lot of time in recruit training, in our officer development at OCS and TBS, telling stories about the personal standards, what we expect of the PFC Lance Corporal, what we expect of the lieutenant and captain at the point of contact. And so you know you have a lot to live up to. And so you, you endeavor to live up to that. And so I think you know, we are often accused of being very traditional and bound by our traditions. But I also think that's an incredibly powerful in combat at the point of contact. And you know, understanding that, you know, you're a Marine, you are a part of an organization that has never been defeated on the battlefield, or you're part of, you know, you know, 2-8 or 1-1 or 3-5 or what have you. And it's like, we've never, we've been kicking ass and taking names for 244 years and, and we've never been defeated and it ain't going to start today. And I have to live up to this. And so that kind of, you know, there used to show a film clip to us in OCS and TBS, such as regiments hand down. 
you know, and talking about World War One and, you know, the old core and the old breed and whatnot. That's real. That intangible belief that the organization you belong to is elite, that will win, you will be successful. You just have to do what Marines have always done. And what I tell people is, yeah, these small battles, firefights, skirmishes, whatever you want to call them, they were nothing at the scope or scale of Iwo Jima or, or Okinawa, Chosin Reservoir, but they were individually and in, in a small sense, there, there was just as much valor and determination displayed on a daily basis as any of those fights in the past. And I think you know, that goes back to old Corps, new Corps, really doesn't matter as long as it's the Marine Corps, you right. know, to quote Chesty Puller. I, I believe in that. I mean, in, you know, when you start even saying it, if the, the hairs on the back of your neck don't start tingling and standing up, like, you know, you're pumping Kool-Aid, you really need to, you know, just telling that story right now, you know, I got a little chill because I do believe that it has a huge impact at the point of contact uh, right. on how we, and I've seen it. I mean, I've compared Marine units. I worked for two Army brigades in combat. You got traded for a pack of cigarettes, you know, in the, <laughs> in the head. But what I saw was, you know, I had an Army, uh, very good, you know, retired as an Army general officer, brigade commander, say, hey, uh, you know, you guys are doing more activity than the rest of the brigade combined, and you're taking more casualties. And, you know, I said, hey, sir, you, you told me to do a job. We're doing it. Marines aren't, didn't come here to not get in the fight. And, you know, we're younger, we're more aggressive, and there's a certain benefit to that when you're getting after accomplishing a mission. You know, you can patrol not to do, like not to get in a fight, or you can patrol to get in a fight. And I think uh, it's our ethos, it's our belief in, and uh, the Marine to our left and right and what they've been through and the fact they wear the Globe and Anchor and I can count on them, that all of that will get you through moments of your first time in the shoot. And I used to tell all the Marines that I've led that don't worry about uh, not performing. You will perform to standard. I guarantee it because you're a Marine. Right. And I think that belief, it may not be based on anything tangible, but... In combat, a lot of times the intangible matters a lot more than the, uh, the, the tangible. So uh, I've just watched units, you know, it's a beautiful thing to see when you, you know, and most of the time we're taking fire, especially in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, we're responding to contact and just the instantaneous action and the, okay, you know, a fire command, an ADRAC, and then the world explodes and people are running towards the sound of the guns, probably just like they did at uh, Chosin or Iwo Jima or anywhere else. And, and, and in that moment, you know that you are part of a brotherhood that goes back hundreds of years and you really know what this title Marine means and why it's so special. Yeah, the, the story, we're such a stories-based organization, which is, I guess, one of the reasons why this project, I like it so much, just the storytelling. But it also goes back to something you said about our obligation as leaders and, and things that you talked about as officers. I mean, that applies to corporal sergeants, leadership, battlefield leadership, you know, I'm not going to call it heroes, bravery, doing what you're doing, what you're supposed to be doing, your obligations as a leader, regardless of rank. 
and we hear the stories and we all know Chesty Puller and Bazelon and, you know, even Bobo, right? Uh, Lieutenant right. Bobo sticking his mud leg in the mud. Those are all stories. And, but they're, they embed the expectations of what we as an organization expect out of you as a leader. And that's why we have Bobo Hall at, at TBS. I'm assuming that still exists there, but I mean, I certainly remember it, but then it a little bit, and I don't want to drag us back into this conversation, but that it, it comes back to the awards, right? Where do these stories come from? It's those awards that create the story. I don't know Brian Chantosh, right? right? The captain that won the, the name. I know that story because I've read it. Right. And when I, when I read that award citation and some of the, the story, I, I look at that and I'm saying, that's, that would be my obligation as an officer. And somewhere he, he figured out that was his obligation as an officer. Got right. a Navy Cross. That's part of our, our story now. It's part of our Marine Corps. It's part of our institution. And it's one of those things that, that obligates people. But the thing about the stories it brings me back to a question because I'm going to assume you've seen that movie Saving Private Ryan and you'll recall that scene when he's standing there with a little mirror on the beachhead and he's got to keep sending the, his soldiers around, his rangers around the corner to take the machine gun nest. They just keep dying and dying and dying. And that was, that's one of those, when you talk about reading and understanding the history of warfare, that, that moment in that movie really resonated with me too because it made me think, wow, if that was me, how hard would that be? I, I'm just wondering if there was ever a singular moment like that in your career where you really fully realized the gravity of your command or your influence or your responsibility, if you could share that story. There was a day in, uh, in Karma, Iraq. And I, uh, so we were, and we had been, our battalion had been split into two operating areas. So I had gotten two other companies assigned to the battalion. And then I had an area in RCT-5, my, my initial AO, and then I had one in Baghdad working for uh, 1st Brigade, 10th Mountain. So the only problem with that arrangement is there's only one battalion commander, and I can't split myself. So literally, I let the XO kind of run the RCT-5, uh, but I kept going back to check on things and like, you know, uh, periodically. But really, I was focused on the mission in Baghdad which was trying, it was after the sectarian violence had just skyrocketed. We were back uh, operating in Western Baghdad for, for the, the Army Brigade. So I'm, but I'm back in my initial AO and I'm checking on, you know, my main effort company, which is Bravo Company. And we're, they had the police station there in Karma. And all of a sudden, literally, the, the, the friggin' city just explodes, right? So you've got, firefight in a, uh, a OP that's now manned only by Iraqis, which was different because we had kind of pulled back as we left them. We were in overwatch, but we weren't partnered anymore because that, that's what we were told to do in the mission we had. And so they're getting assaulted. And then there's, you know, V-bids coming down the main uh, thoroughfare, ASR Chicago, uh, being handled by Marine forces that are out patrolling are like kind of locking the city down. So this was the first actions that participated like a 36-hour fight. Uh, RCT-5 pushed me, you know, tanks and, you know, I got air and all this other stuff. But we end up fighting for the better part of a day and, and some change. I'm like, you know, I got a five-vehicle, 25-person PSD, like a platoon that's pretty heavily armed. And so I just go to the company commander at this point. I go, what can I do to help right now? I'm on the phone getting resources. They're coming. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of done that. He's got the air support. He's fighting his fight. It's a company battle. 
I bring another company in from the north to kind of help isolate the objective area and prevent leakers from getting back out because I, I don't want to redo this every two, three weeks. And so those actions are going. He's like, I need to reinforce OP3 where the Iraqis are. I don't have anybody to do that. Can you do that? I go, yeah. So we head down, I think it's West Karma Road with all the vehicles and literally shooting our way into the OP. And we get in there. And the Iraqi lieutenant is fighting like crazy, but he's, he's been shot. Uh, he's eventually going to bleed out there. I put the PSD on the wall, you know, put them on the parapet, so to speak, of the OP. I'm like, hey, we're defending this place. And we eventually get the Iraqis organized and they kind of counterattack out the side gate of the OP uh, under their own leadership, which was heartening. and. They bring, they capture about 15 dudes, huh? you know, and they bring them back and they're going to execute them. Oh, wow. And so, so people say, this is the closest I ever come to getting killed in combat. So I'm, I see this and I get between the firing squad and, you know, the terrorists, which I mean, you know, I'm going to get killed for these jackasses. What a way to go. But I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. Right. And they're, you know, they're yelling at me in Arabic. I really don't understand. I'm like, no, 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 no. My interpreter gets there and starts. And then right at that time, the comp, the, the battalion, the Iraqi battalion had reinforced their own position. There was a Lieutenant that had pretty good English skills that I'd work with in our partnership arrangement. He comes up and, you know, orders them down. So it seemed like this was a long period of time. I'm not sure how long I was there that they were pointing weapons at me. It probably wasn't as long as it seemed. But then, you know, Lieutenant Ali comes in and, you know, kind of diffuses the situation. But then he tells me, he goes, you got to get these guys out of here. <laughs> right. So. I go, okay, this seems to be stabilized here. The OP is reinforced. I said, okay, because he brought a platoon of Iraqis, so now there's more forces there. They don't need me now. So I put all 15 guys in the high back Humvee, like piling them on cordwood, you know, after we duck, you know, we, we flex cuffed them and everything. And we take them back to the police station and we put them in a, we had been building like, and they weren't fully occupied yet, but living spaces that were better than what the police station provided. So there was like a sea hut there that had been. So we put them all in there, blindfold them, spaced them out, put people in there, guard them, and then brought our CI human team from Camp Fallujah into this uh, area to start doing tactical questioning. <laughs> and um, but that was probably like that moment where. You're like, you know, you're just acting. And I probably had abrogated battalion command when I'm reinforcing this one post. But I did, you know, this is a close, really hairy uh, fight. The only thing I, I knew to do was we can't lose this position because now then the whole west of the town falls apart. And so I got to make sure that doesn't happen. He doesn't have the forces to do it. I don't have any other forces because the guys from the north can't get through the whole city to get to that point. I'm like the only option. You realize that you just go do it. And then you're relying on the company commander being able to liaison with 
the the MIT team that is with the battalion to get the battalion, the Iraqis, to reinforce their own positions, which they do. That takes time, but they not a lot of time comparatively. They 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 acted pretty good on that. And then they we are now in Overwatch of them as they're clearing their own town, which we had. It took a while to set up because you know there's a language barrier. They're Iraqis. They're not that great at, at this stage in their development. So. We coached them through the right solution. We helped them. We provided Overwatch, ISR, fires, all that. But, you know, then, then we go do that for the next, you know, 30 some hours or so. One of the most interesting things about your career to me is that you can really segment your career into three big buckets, right? Your infantry time, your recruiting time, and then your time on the Hill with legislative affairs. And I don't know if a, if a lot of people know this, but you have a tremendous amount of experience on Capitol Hill. And I remember back my younger days looking at Codell's and Congress and things like that with just complete disdain. I mean, right. You're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. No, but, but, but as I grew older, you know, I realized that those things are a, a critical component of the oath that we swore and for our, for our democracy to operate as intended with civilian oversight of the military. Can you share some of your leadership experiences on the Hill that can help junior leaders understand how vital those things are to our democracy? Yeah. First of all, you know, I shared your initial impressions of that. You know, I can remember seeing a promotion list to a uh, general officer and, and not seeing, you know, Colonel Ripley's name on it, but seeing a guy uh, that I'd never heard of and asking like, who the hell is this dude? You know? And they said, well, he's the, you know, the Senate director. He's going to be the LA to the commandant. I'm like, what's that? And Ledge Affairs works with Congress. I'm like, oh my God. You know, right. why are we promoting a guy to do that? You know, so, but no, I, you know, I got the house director job in uh, 2008. And, um, it, you know, it, it really opened a, a lot of my eyes as to the collaboration between when it works well, the relationship between the services and the Congress of the United States is a collaborative relationship. And so if you look at the, the triangle between Congress, the building, and industry, where there is collaboration, discussion, a helpful relationship, then good things normally occur. And where there's not, when those relationships break down, you usually get the you know, $400 hammer and some of the other things that aren't particularly productive in our defense establishment. So my experience has always been very positive. And there's a caricature of Congress, you know, they have, you know, a 3% approval rating, you know, or something like that. And, you know, nobody likes them very much, but they're doing, I, what I would always tell Marines is they're, they're performing their constitutional obligation, right. just like you are. And so article one, section eight of the constitution basically says, you know, that you will uh, raise an army, maintain a Navy, and the Congress oversees and provides laws and authorities for the Armed Force of the United States, yada, yada, yada. They take that very seriously. And so what you come to learn is, you know, you have professional staff on the defense committees. They're very knowledgeable on all the defense issues. And so, well, you know, Marine officers are usually like, you know, five miles wide and, you know, a quarter of an inch deep on a lot of different issues because we're generalists, mm -hmm. especially at the general officer ranks. You know, they may work on one issue and they've been there for 20 years and they know everything about it. And, you know, your predecessor's predecessor, predecessor, 
they knew him and they knew what he said. And so, you know, you can't bullshit them at all. And the Marine Corps is generally viewed as the service with the best relationship with Capitol Hill because number one, we need a good relationship. You don't need a Marine Corps, you know, Brute Krulak said, you, right. the American people want a Marine Corps. And where they express that want is through their elected representatives in the Congress of the United States in both the House of Representatives and the Senate. And so understanding that, and when, when the senators or congressmen, they have requests for information, you need to make sure that information is correct. You make, make sure that information is delivered in a timely fashion with a smile on your face, and you're happy to help them no matter what the ask is. And I think where that, that's how the Marine Corps has always dealt with this uh, obligation. And, you know, we're structured to do it, I think, better than every service. You know, like we're the only service that has a dedicated, uh, like, congruent answering machine, so to speak. You know, like we have people, mm -hmm. uh, caseworkers that work each congruent. And I know when you're in the fleet, those things are viewed as onerous, but there's a member, they've got constituents, they have a question, they can't get an answer, they ask for the answer, and we have an obligation to answer their question. And so for us, like in other services, if it's an admin thing, it goes to G1, if it's, you know, so it, it could you know, delay in getting to the right uh, staff section of a headquarters organization. We, they all come to a central clearinghouse. We quarterback that congressional interest item to the appropriate headquarters Marine Corps staff section or operating force uh, unit. And then we get an answer and we direct that answer and we get, we deliver it to the person requesting, whether it's in a district office or the DC office. And so what I used to tell people is if you think you can get away with anything, you better think again. I had a fax machine when I was the house director that would just spit congruence out like a runaway machine gun. And mm -hmm. we were answering them all the time because, you know, there's reserves and active component. There's over 200,000 Marines. They all have mothers. They all live in a congressional district. And you may not know who your congressman is, but your mother does. And so if there's something that's not happening with her baby boy or girl, and she takes an interest in it and writes a congressman, that's going to get answered. And you need to answer that and you take that seriously. Most CODELs, they're not all the same, but when they visit, they're looking for information so they can make good decisions. So our obligation is to get them the best information that they want. And while doing so, transmit our message to them so they understand our perspective. And our best messengers are our most junior Marines. You know, most congressmen and senators, they don't trust generals. So when you bring them someplace, don't brief them with a lot of PowerPoint. Don't have a bunch of colonels and generals talk to them and host them around. Put them in front of people from their district that, you know, these are all fathers and, you know, and grandfathers. And they, you know, they may have a kid in the basement who graduated from college, still at home, not working. And to see a young American, you know, briefing somebody about the challenges of maintaining an F-18 on a flight line. And they're like, how old are you? How long have you been a Marine? And this kid is just talking like a true expert in their profession. It blows members of Congress away. And they walk away like, holy mackerel, that was an impressive young man or woman. Right. And so if you want to, you can answer their information request while transmitting the message that's the beneficiary, like the Marine Corps is the beneficiary of, without them ever knowing you're transmitting a message. 
But they're, what they're taking away is Marine Corps must, is a special organization. If it can get men and women to do this at that junior in age and believe in it so passionately. And you don't really even have to coach young Marines. They're our best transmitters. They are. They are. I think I look back on it. And again, I go back to my, you know, complete disdain comment because I think in, in my youth and by that, I mean my maturity level, I looked at it as a dog and pony that was taking away from me doing something else. And it was a pain in the ass. And, and what I've come to learn is exactly what you just said. And I, I think that if there's young leaders out there, corporals, sergeants, lieutenants who are on the front lines of a, of a CODEL or something like that, and members of Congress are coming around, what, what a great piece of advice to figure out what district are they from and, get, and oh, find yeah. out if any of the Marines in your unit are from their district and get those people to talk and be involved in that. That's a great piece of advice. And I had never heard that before. And I, I hope everybody rewinds that and listens to it again. Yeah, we try to do that all the time. And we used to, I mean, the Corps used to put on these when I was at Camp Lejeune, because Camp Lejeune is close to DC. They used to bring down members for capability exercises, which were these big MAGTAF level displays of how to integrate all elements of the MAGTAF and a you know, firepower solution or a you know, maneuver exercise just to show the members, you know, this is what. And when you give the Marine Corps resources, this is what we buy and here's what it does. And then, you know, allow them to talk to Marines or sailors from their district. Again, that lets the, the again, the, the people's representatives of the American public who knows they want a Marine Corps, it m makes those representatives cognizant about what this force does and how valuable it is and how why no one else can do what we do. That's extremely important. I don't know sometimes if we, we teach the paranoia 101 enough anymore to where people understand the Marine Corps could go away tomorrow. If the American public doesn't believe they need one or they're not willing to expend the resources necessary to maintain one, then the Marine Corps, the, you know, other people can do the things that we do, maybe not as well as we do them, but they can. So our job, part of your job as a Marine always is to be selling your institution. Because again, it's it's a multi-domain organization before multi-domain became a, a catchphrase. And so because it's not anchored in any one domain, like if you have water, you got to have a Navy. If you got land, you got to have an Army, Air, Air Force. Well, where does the Marine Corps go? In all of them. So it's a thing that you want to have, but our job is to make sure that the American public and its representatives know, know that they, the America also needs one. They want it and they need it, and it's very important, and this is what it does. And I think that's where messaging is so important to any organization, really, in a very competitive space, no matter if you're in business or what, uh, or, or in the Marine Corps. That, the ability to message what you do, your brand, to the external audience and have the people recognize it as unique, understand its importance and value, and then buy it. That's what we're trying to do for the Marine Corps. And it may sound like, well, we're a military service. It's all about lethality. I agree with that. But without any funding, there's no lethality. And the funding comes from a realization that we need to give these resources to good custodians who do the nation's work and provide lethal forces that are ready all the time to fight tonight on the four corners of the globe. That's why there's a Marine Corps. And right. so it's, a, it's, a, it's incumbent upon Marines of every rank from PFC to, to the Commandant to never lose an opportunity to make sure that that is understood by members of Congress.
Thanks for that. I, I want to use that as a segue over to talk about one of your other bucket, the bucket of your career that has to do with recruiting. And for some context, I'll, I'll set it up like this. I, I run a civilian company and every day my most valuable asset walks out the door at five o'clock and I hope to God they come back to work the next day. And so my, I am constantly thinking about retention and making sure that my employees want to come back to work here every single day. My personal opinion from the outside looking in now is that the Marine Corps has a retention problem. And I don't know if it's a retention problem or if it's a symptom of something even bigger. And I'd like to take a moment and talk about your experiences on the recruiting side as it relates to the transformation that takes place when Marines go through their initial training and they earn the title of Marine. I remember mine. I know you remember yours. I know every single person listening to this who's a Marine will remember that moment. It's, it's newer now where they press the uh, Eagle Globe anchor into your palm. That, that, that didn't exist when you and I were there, but it was still equally as proud moment. Uh, and they, they start out with this. I want to be a part of the Marine Corps more than anything else in the world. And then somewhere along the line, they, they, they want to get out. What's happening, sir? What's, what's your experience and your thought on that? Well, recruiting was probably one of the hardest jobs ever I ever did in the Marine Corps. And so I was a recruiting station CO, RS Sacramento, California, 98 to 2001. I got on the duty. I got a phone call. I was the S3 of 37, 29 Palms. I'm about two weeks away from going advanced party to Okinawa. Uh, and I'm the battalion S3, you know, or one of three field grade officers in an infantry battalion. So uh, there's the commander, the XO, and me. So not an unimportant billet. I get a phone call that says, you know, weirdest thing like, like literally ever happened to me. The phone call, you know, I'm Gunny so-and-so from the national training team. And I'm thinking, I didn't even know we had one of those. And I need your government credit card uh, information for the National Ops and Training Conference. I'm thinking, oh, I didn't know we got all the S3s in the Marine Corps together for a National Ops and Training Conference. Hmm. I go, where is this conference? And he says, San Diego. And I'm like, you know, what is it? I mean, and, she, and so then she explains it's a national ops and training recruiting conference. I'm like, well, I think you got the wrong guy. I'm, 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 I'm the S3 for 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. In fact, and on this date, I'm going to be in Okinawa. And so she says, aren't you Major David Furness? And I'm like, yeah. She says, I've got you as the CEO of RS Sacramento. And I'm like, huh? Uh-oh. <laughs> so I go, okay, well, look, I, you got things to do. I, here's my government credit card number. I, I, I think you got the wrong guy, but we'll, we'll hammer this out the rest of the day. I, so I hang up the phone. I walk into the XO's office. And the XO had been on recruiting duty as a lieutenant, as an OPSO XO, lieutenant captain, as an OPSO XO recruiting station. And I tell him this little vignette, and he goes, oh, dude, you are so screwed. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, you're replacing somebody who got fired. I guarantee it. And you're, you're going to recruiting and, duty. And you just don't know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> and so prior to that, I'd been selected on the RSCO board, but there were only six or eight guys on that list. And so what happened was there was a, a logistics officer who wanted the particular station that I had been slated to. I didn't want to go on the duty anyway. I was trying to stay for, the, for this deployment to Okinawa as a battalion S3. And so 
the monitor ended up calling me and said, hey, we're going to put you on the alternate list from the primary list because this guy's on the alternate list, but he really wants to do it. And we've got a lot of geo involvement up here. So we're going to move it so he can be RS Orange County. And I go, so what's going to happen to me now? Because by this time, you see, you've already come through all the stages of grief and uh, you know you're going there. So you kind of accepted <laughs> it. And so he said, well, we'll probably give you orders somewhere. That, and I go, well, look, here, I want to go on this deployment. So once you let me go on the deployment, I get back in time for summer move next year. You obviously have RSs that are going to come open during that time period, don't you? He goes, yeah, there's going to be 25 of them. I go, well, if I screen for eight, I'll screen for 25. Why don't you just keep me and then I'll go in, you know, next year, which is going to be 99. He goes, okay. He goes, but look, somebody gets clipped out there and they get fired. I'm just letting you know you're on the alternate list still. And I mean, I can't protect that. I'm like, okay, yeah, whatever. I'm rolling the dice that that's not going to happen. So guy got relieved. And so I get the call after I get back from the XO's office, the district CO's on the phone, you know, and I go, sir. It's a very emotional time when, uh, or event when that drill, for both the drill instructor and the new recruit who now is transformed into a Marine. And so at that moment, they are true believers in the Marine Corps. Every, you know, of every one of our core values, they want to take in and embrace and make it part of who they are uh, individually and, and collectively as a Marine. But what happens is, you know, we sell them on a certain belief that, you know, every, you're always a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine, we're a family. Somewhere along the way, they run into leadership that doesn't give them that in actuality. Okay, so we, they, you know, they've been told the Marine Corps is this. They, they see the commercials. They're always doing this challenging training. They're out there, you know, doing fun Marine-like stuff all the time. And then the the reality of the day-to-day -day life and in, in, in our organizations, they meet leaders who uh, maybe aren't concerned and caring about what they're going through, don't know them. Uh, you know, they learn, know your Marines, look out for their welfare. They don't see anybody doing that. The training's not very challenging. They spend a lot of time not being well utilized, you know, bored. And then there's the preying upon them by the Lance Corporals from hell and the barracks when uh, the more senior leadership vacates the pattern at the end of the day. And I think it creates an environment where some of them, you know, join the negative ranks. Some of them determine I'm going to do my four years and get out to see the organization for me. And so I think we need to personally take that as a challenge for all leaders in the Marine Corps at every level. And I'll give you an example. So one of the things I did when I was CG of second Marine division is I created this, I wanted to do more live fire or not more force on force training to augment the live fire training, which we were pushing hard in the division. Because I, I view live fire training as hitting the heavy bag. You got to hit the heavy bag. You got to know how to throw a punch. You got to mm -hmm. be able to hit what you aim at. Uh, that's all very important. And then the collective knowing how to work around each other and integrate the, the, all the different arms into that combined arm solution and being comfortable with things exploding around you and people firing off on your left or right. Very, very important. Additionally, 
what is important is the cognitive aspect of understanding the battlefield, knowing how to sense the battlefield, and knowing how to make decisive actions on the battlefield, which is more a cognitive training event than it is a physical training event. So force on force helps you do that. Live fire helps you do all the other acts, but you want to merge those. So I wanted to create a force, an ad for company that would be able to be used by every unit in the division to do more force on force training. When you looked at my roles, I had a bunch of people that weren't doing anything, that weren't in organizations. So my TOE was like, you know, seven or sixteen thousand, you know, eight hundred. And I always had about 17,200 on the roll. So what are the rest of these people doing? What, so we formed this organization from people who were getting out short time, uh, non-deployables that had basically chosen, hey, the Marine Corps is not for me. And so we formed this organization out of them. So a company size, think, you know, I think at, at its largest, it was about 180 people, probably was always more than 100. Picked handpicked leadership at the sergeant, staff NCO, and I put the best company commander in the division who was going to be a major in charge of the organization. I said, just run. Mm. You know, here's what I'm looking for. Tell me what you need me to do. Hey, can I get uniforms? Hey, can I get linked up with what McWill's doing? Got him training as an ad for unit from the warfighting lab, some Gucci gear, you know, drones and comm gear. I got him some dune buggies, you know, the M-Razors. And I wanted to, them to be kind of the, un, the, the kind of the hybrid threat that I could plug into a battalion when we did McCree so you could get conventional, unconventional, kind of like uh, Russian little green men, Ukraine type thing in, in Crimea, you know, what was uh, experienced there in 2014. So mm -hmm. we did that. So all these guys want to get out. Interesting thing happens on the way to getting out. These guys are always in the field. They're always training. They don't have any limitations placed on them. Like anything they want to do, they can do, right? So they're getting classes in threat tactics. They have threat weapon, you know, all these things. And what happens is, and great leadership, they become energized. And when I start looking at stats for reenlistment, because I'm trying to get people to hit reenlistment goals that I've put on all the subordinate commanders to, to meet our reenlistment objectives. Funny thing happens. The, the unit with the highest reenlistment rate is the ad for company. Is it? Wow. So why is that? So I think part of our problem is you got to make being a Marine challenging. You got to make it enjoyable. You got to have great leaders. And if you do all those things and you're always training, you're doing what Marines are supposed to be doing, you're well-led, people are teaching, coaching, mentoring you, people know who you are. You know, this unit went from uh, becoming an ad for to just a second Marine division unit. Uh, word got out and they were, they were being requested by MARSOC and the SEAL teams, and which I said, you could do whatever you want, but my units supersede those guys, okay? So if there's a conflict, you're going right. to say no to the SEAL team, six dudes, and MARSOC for the Raven X's. And you're just, because I built you for a particular purpose. I don't mind you doing that. I think it's great for the Marines. I think it's great for you. Knock yourself out. They went to NTC. They did a bunch of other stuff. They spent more time in the field training and fighting than any other unit in the division. And so they were really good at it. Their morale was off the chart. They loved doing what they were doing and they wanted to stay in the Marine Corps. Huh. 
So that's great. I think now that's a very small sample size, and I'm not saying I've got the solution for what ails the core presently, because I think it's a little bit of the same narrative that you hear that's reduced propensity prior to them joining the core exists for staying in the core. You know, family, friends, people are not saying, hey, it's a great lifestyle, you should do that. We're not currently at war, which we have been for 20 years. So you can't say, hey, the country needs me. I need to stay in and do this. So there's not that pull that draws people to retain, like self-retain themselves, even though it may be difficult to do that. I think it's it's up to good old-fashioned leadership, uh, leaders who care, leaders who know who you are, leaders who are humble and empathetic to your uh, personal condition. I always say, you know, the first and foremost role of a, a leader is to know your Marines and sailors so well, you know really who they are as a person. And you try to make them a better person in order to achieve their personal goals and aspirations. And in doing that, they will become a better Marine or sailor. And when they do that, you will become a more lethal or ready organization because of that transformation. But it takes a lot of energy up front to truly know who they are, what they have gone through to get to this point. What do you hope to gain out of service in the Marine Corps? And a lot of times we believe we're just too busy to do all those necessary things. And ergonomically, we have made it more difficult. When you and I came in, most of us lived in squad bays. The platoon commander's office was in the squad bay. We were never away from our Marines. And now we've got great barracks, but you know, there's two people to a room. The room is really nice, but we're far away from them and they can separate and segregate and isolate themselves. And we got to do things more on a collective to get them together, but it's also hard to get to know them. Right. And, and you got to put more energy behind that. So I think, I think like most complex problems, it's not, there's no silver bullet. There's a lot of things that need to happen. We need to make it easier for Marines to train. Like we need to, like a sergeant should be able to be an RSO or PSO at a range and sign that range out, even if it's a live fire and movement range. I mean, he's going to take his squad and patrol with it and execute live fire and, and movement or maneuver against the enemy in combat. You ought to let him train to do that. If in fact, you know, it's part of that, you got to trust them in peacetime because you're going to have to trust them in wartime. You don't have a choice, but you shouldn't have such a disparate example of how you lead them between the two, you know, kind of polar extremes, if you will. Right. I think, I think there's a, a leadership lesson embedded here too, and it, and it ties back a little bit. And I know you haven't heard this, but Lieutenant General Heckel's interview with me last week, he talked about how he will mess with policies all day long. Orders and directives, a little bit more of a gray area, a little bit more challenging to mess with. And then of course there's the law, which is, you know, he took an oath to, to uphold the law and he classified in those three different things. I think there's a challenge out there for young emerging leaders that there needs to be a concerted effort to start challenging some policies that exist that inhibit training. Like you were saying, a, a sergeant can't be an RSO. And I've seen this take place because I, and you'll remember this, I rewind back to the nineties when you couldn't be a forward air controller unless you were a naval aviator. Remember right. that? And now we have corporals who are JTACs. So I know that policies can be changed radically at the institutional level 
and maybe there needs to be a look at this from leaders across the spectrum of all the ranks and start challenging some of these policies that are inhibiting retention and making making people just throw their hands up and say, I've just fucking had enough of this bullshit. Right. So I'll give you another vignette. When I was uh, onboarding to Second Marine Division, I, you know, you, you go around all your different organizations. There's 19 battalions in the Marine Corps or 19 battalions in the 2nd Marine Division. So it takes you a while to get around everything. The last unit I visited was the band, okay? And I go in the band and to, to walk around their CP or the band uh, room for the 2nd Marine Division band, and there's all these rehearsal rooms that are you know, in, in there, and there's people playing their instrument in their room. And I thought, okay, they're doing that. The boss is coming. They're showing off, whatever. And then there, there's rehearsal rooms, and you've got ensembles rehearsing. And so I asked the, the warrant officer, I go, did you guys just do this for me? And they're like, no, no, sir. You know, we, when we're not at an event, and we do 250 events a year, uh, the Marines get six to eight hours a day on their instrument. And everybody's always impressed by musicians, our musicians. They're, they are truly professional. And they, they add so much to every... Uh, ceremony and they just they can they, they do amazing things they you know when you go to their you know band concerts for christmas and some of their events they just you're just blown away by how good these young marines are well there's no no doubt that they're good i mean just think how good your rifle company would be if every marine got six to eight hours a day on their instrument and it was kind of like an aha moment like i gotta make i gotta do my best to get rid of all the training restrictions and push people to get that much training, you know, when they're in garrison or when they're in the field, six to eight hours a day on your instrument every day, 200 events a year plus, that's like training exercises. I mean, you've got to do that level and the band's morale is off the chart. They love that's, it. Yeah, that's great. So. We got to make it more like that for whether you're a motor T guy or you're a maintainer or you're a machine gunner and one eight, it doesn't matter. We got to make it challenging that you get to do what you do in the Marine Corps a lot. And we need to make it easy to do that. So a lot of these policies and, you know, Marine Corps orders that make it harder to do that, we need to take a look at and see if we need to get rid of them. But we, you know, Put the onus on unit leaders to create environments where people feel free to challenge themselves. They get a lot of time on their instrument and they get a lot of collective training reps and sets that in both the like hitting the heavy bag, the live fire vent, and also the cognitive bag of making decisions in a very confusing force on force environment. And the combination of those will lead to a very elite lethal, high morale, well-led organization that in my mind cannot be defeated on the battlefield. Right. Great opportunity to segue over to your time in the division. You know, one of the distinct differences, my experience in the civilian world is in the, between the Marine Corps is that we talk a tough game about firing people in the Marines. And personally, I've seen more firings take place in a 12-month period in my civilian career than I ever saw in my entire career in the Marine Corps. I would like to use that to guide a discussion on the topic of your 2019 basic daily routine letter that you published in your division. Uh, and I know we talked about this before and, and you said it was okay to introduce the, the subject for people who don't, I'll get a little, little background so people know what we're talking about here, but you published a policy letter 
detailing this a new basic daily routine across a division because of what you identified as a significant decline in discipline among Marines and sailors in your division. And the, the policy letter from 2019 stated, and I'm going to quote it, we have allowed Marines and sailors to walk around with long hair, non-existent or poor shaves, unserviceable boots and utilities, and inappropriate civilian attire, quote. Again, there are weeds growing amongst our buildings and workspaces and trashes everywhere, except for the dumpsters where it belongs. There was a significant amount of blowback in some blogs and opinion pieces that came out on the internet that this was an example of micromanagement. And there's been a, a good deal of recent digital opinion surrounding the lack of accountability on the, the senior officer level as, as a not associated with your BDR, but just in general. And so my question is, why didn't you simply hold your 19 battalion commanders that you said, or, or their, their regimental commanders accountable to your expectations on discipline, and then just start firing people? And if you were given a time machine to go back in time, what, if anything, would you have done differently given the deteriorating discipline across the vision? As an aside, not that this was in your letter, I have heard many stories about how there were Marines in the chow hall in their pajamas. So that was there too. Yeah. Yeah, there was that. So I think it's important for leaders to always have feedback mechanisms because the higher you go, the more homogenized your information. Uh, people, I'm not saying they want to keep bad news from the boss, but they want to homogenize the news that the boss gets for what they believe is his own good or her own good. And so what I found, and I've been doing this since I was a company commander, is wherever you believe the rubber meets the road, you need to talk to people that are at that location about what's really going on. And what I found is the more junior the Marines, the more free they are to tell you the baby's ugly. And then you get the unvarnished, non-homogenized ground truth. So I had a sergeant's council that I established that was you know, one sergeant handpicked by the battalion commander from their organization that represented them. It wasn't a parallel chain of command. They had to report back what we talked about. We published kind of the minutes of here, this is what went on. I kept the commanders informed, but I found it necessary to hear what sergeants had to say about what's going well, what wasn't going well, what needed to be fixed. Uh, and also they could hear from me what I needed their help on. So it was a two-way street information flow organization. So. I had noticed this from day one, and I'm trying to deal with it individually. It's not getting better fast enough. And so I asked the sergeant's council if they, am I just an old crank or am I, uh, are they seeing the same things that I was seeing? They said, absolutely, sir, you're spot on. So I said, well, look, you guys, I often ask you, like, they developed an SOP for how the Marines were going to wear the gear in the division. They, I said, you guys come up with it. The gunner, all the, the division gunner is going to be kind of the QC of it with all the battalion and regimental gunners, but you're going to develop it and you're going to agree to this is what the way you guys uh, want to wear the, the, the equipment. And they did it. So I said, I need you to go back. What are we going to do about it? You need to come back to me with things to change the narrative of this, where do you think we need to go to fix this problem? I give you two weeks. So they come back and they come back with this letter. Now I, I'm an English major and a history major, so I had to like do some grammar <laughs> corrections, but very superficial, not anything in content or tone. And I said, well, why do you think this will help? 
And so they explained themselves. And pretty much what they said was that the, the, the advent of the PAC order, the prohibited activities order, which we published on the backside of Marines United scandal, right. had caused the staff NCOs to retreat from the barracks and you know uh, the hands, the daily supervision of Marines, and that the staff NCOs would not support them to do these things unless my signature was mandating it, providing top cover for these kind of activities. So I didn't think twice about it. I just signed it and sent it out. Now, you know, I'd done similar things in First Marines and in First Battalion First Marines, and no one ever, now those were different times. And some of those were before the advent of the smartphone and social media and the internet and all that shit. So really didn't process it through that lens. Mm -hmm. The mistake I made and the things I would do different is in the discussion with this, you know, it was, the whole division staff was witting and, and a participant and, you know, the Sergeant Major, the Chief, the ADC, all that. And they were supportive and, and battalion commanders. What I, I didn't have my PAO involved. And that was a huge mistake on my part because there was no, like, had I looked at this in hindsight, what I would do if I was coming out with a new initiative, I would you know, I'll use the term market it better, but what I did and after the blow up, I said, okay, obviously people don't understand why I did this. So I have to explain myself. So I went, I developed a, a presentation that helped explain myself and, you know, what the, what the end states that I was trying to achieve through these methods. And I gave it to every, you know, sergeant and above and every organization. And so all 19 battalions took a month to do. And then, so I would give this 90 minute PME to the SAR, all the leaders of the battalion. Then I'd go and give a 15 minute recap to the battalion writ large. I said, I've just talked to your leaders. Here's what I told them. This is why we're doing it. I want you to understand. I'm not trying to get in your skivvies and tell you how to suck an egg, but this is what I've seen. This is how it detracts from readiness, lethality, and your survival on the battlefield. So I'm doing this for your own good. You may not understand it, but you got to trust me and trust your senior leaders. This is for our own good as an organization. And, you know, as I was, you know, you give presentations, you start seeing people and their heads start to nod. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I should have done that first and then put the letter out. Okay. And so I... I completely reversed that. So it was an uphill battle, but I basically got buy-in post flare-up. And you also got to recognize that there was very few people in the division that were on those sites, you know, yelling and screaming about what was happening. It was people outside who didn't know what the, what the deal was. And so while I understand that you got to be sensitive to the social media environment that you have that that you're in as a commander in 2021 or 2022 in the Marine Corps, you can't let negative inputs affect you if you know you're right. And you got to have, uh, I mean, I was called all kind of names. I'm like, okay, whatever. I knew I was right. I knew we had a problem. I knew it would cause Marines to needlessly die on the battlefield. And it was my obligation to fix it. I tried to fix it by encouragement. Hey, you know, by you know, mentoring, teaching, coaching, and 
I'm not saying that wasn't having an effect, but the effect was too slow and uh, I needed to shock the system. And so that's what I did. We got a lot better. We did, we did quarterly discipline stand downs where we kind of re-baseline, you know, platoon commander's notebook, counseling, all kinds of things that were related to how you run an organization. And there's a lot of coaching. Now, my point was the people that are 05 commanders circa 2019 were lieutenants when we crossed the border in Iraq in 20, uh, 2003. Mm-hmm. And now they're in charge. So they've been at a one-to-one depth of dwell where we didn't really have a time to professionalize them the way like you and I were professionalized at a, like a one-to-three depth of dwell force. So part of it is they didn't even know what they didn't know. And so, you know, I go back to how, you know, PK uh, Van Riper you know, tightened us as we came back from Desert Storm mm-hmm. and uh, imprinted that. And, and when the why behind his actions was the, the loss of discipline in the Marine Corps in Vietnam towards the end of our involvement there and then post-Vietnam until Lou Wilson and, and uh, Robert Barrow like saved the Marine Corps from itself in, you know, 75 to 80 time period which is like the, the Marine Corps you and I joined was a result of those two gentlemen kind of, you know, re-baselining everything. And so in the trying to do the same thing, I had a lot of these old uh, retired guys reach out to me, basically telling me, hey, we've been there. It's tough. You got to do it. You're on the right track. And so, you know, like my wife would laugh at me. She says, yeah, everybody over 50 years old loves you. Everybody like under 30 thinks you're a lunatic, you know? Okay. But you have to believe that you're right. And I think you, what, what, and you believe that based on your education, your training, your experience, and the mentorship you receive from senior Marines. And so part of the, these stories you hear, like in the second division during Barrow's time, you know, one of the, C, the CG right before Gray, was General Toomey, and they called him the Gunny, okay? Because what he mandated, part of his, this is how we're going to get, like, re-green my division, is you had to do an hour of close order drill every day, every day, marching to and from the chow, mandatory. I mean, so it was, like, really, like, putting the division back in boot camp. What happened, when you talk to guys like General Zinni, who was Captain Zinni at the time, he said, we all started to feel a little bit of pride in how we were a little bit, you know, harder organization than everybody else. And, and, and things got better. And so then Al Gray comes along and you talk to Al Gray and say, could you have done what you did operationally with the division to kind of develop maneuver warfare concepts, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and kind of institutionalize that in the division had it not been a disciplined force when you arrived based on what Toomey had done in the three previous years? He says, absolutely not. I, I wouldn't be able to, to achieve anything like that. So, you know, you know, they could call me the company gunny if they want to. I didn't make them do close order drill. I thought about it. You're right. <laughs> because I just think, you know, th- there's a what I saw in my seven combat deployments was the most disciplined units were the most combat effective. And they didn't do what I call own goals. They didn't kill themselves. It's hard enough to stay alive when the enemy's actively conspiring for your demise. Uh, you don't need to make it any easier for him by doing it to yourself through not doing things you were trained to do or actually doing things you were told not to do. 
Okay. And what I saw was we did a lot of that in Iraq and Afghanistan. So what I came away from those experiences is, is that you can't be too disciplined, that these procedures, processes, most of them were developed written in blood, so to speak, like NATOPS mm-hmm. manuals. Yeah, you can violate this, but you're probably going to crash your airplane because that's why this rule's here. So these things need to be understood. They need to be taught, coached, mentored, trained to. And then they need that there's a standard they need to be adhered to. And what I always said was you don't get to pick and choose what rule, regulation, process, procedure you like and which ones you don't. They all apply. They need to be executed. And leaders, I expect you to hold people to these standards and yourselves. And so if you talk to guys like some of my battalion commanders who are just graduating war college, a couple are in the PhD program, you know, they call it the Battle of Wallace Creek, the, the, <laughs> you know, the 8th Marines, you know, the area that uh, they lived in. Uh, it was the battle for the barracks. And it was a no kidding battle for kind of the heart and soul and the ethos of the basic Marine in the division. And it's a leadership issue. It's a caring issue. And I think over time, we had an effect. It, it was never as fast or as developed as I wanted it to be. But you don't ever give up just because it's hard. I think the most valuable thing that I heard you say about that was, well, first of all, Dave Armstrong would walk around and see any of those things that you mentioned in your letter. And I would say to myself, where I see that, I'm going to see something wrong in the armory. Where right. I see something wrong in the armory, I'm going to see a platoon that is like gunny highways out of Heartbreak Ridge before he took over the platoon. That's going to be out there if these things are going on. So I, I understand the mindset. The most valuable thing you said, sir, for, for emerging leaders to understand is that you said, I wish I had done it backwards. And if everybody hears that from you, sir, it's not about whether the BDR was right or wrong. It wasn't really about, my point isn't whether it's right or wrong. It's that, hey, even as a three-star general, you're still going through these iterative processes with leadership. There's, there, oh, yeah. there is no PhD in leader. You never achieve mastery of leadership. You're always iterating. You're always learning and you're always experiencing and the facts are that you were willing to talk about that being a mistake and what you learned from it. First of all, I personally really appreciate it. I know listeners do too. And I think it's very valuable. So thank you for that. Well, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, you, you're always learning uh, better ways to do business. The big thing too is, you know, a lot of times what I've seen is we're good leading people that are easy to be led, but we're not very good at leading people that are difficult to lead. And uh, you're going to meet mm. Marines that are difficult to lead. That doesn't mean they don't deserve your best shot and your best leadership. That just means it's not going to be as fulfilling as the, you know, six foot two, you know, 3% body fat, 300 PFT or who's got 27 MCIs done and, you know, does a hundred pushups before he goes to bed and doesn't get drunk on the weekend. I mean, I mean, those guys are great, but you're, you got to lead your average guys right. to success. And so that requires a lot of time. What my best friend, Dale Alford, and I talked to about touching their souls, changing the trajectory of their lives by being involved with them. This was me getting involved with every Marine. Mm -hmm. And so I would walk around and supervise. And when I would see, I would kind of coach and correct after that. But they, what, what all those sessions did, and then I started it with, I just give the session for all my new joins. You know, sergeant above, I, I'd bring them in, you know, when I had like 300 new joins, boom, I'd give them this class. So they understood what we're, what we're talking about here. I think it did have 
an effect. And what, so here's what I'll give you. Like, so what does it mean to your ability to fight? Because that's really all that matters to Marines. It's lethality. That's why we exist. So we do a, a, a huge exercise out in 29 Palms and it, called the MWX. It was the first one that uh, they tried to get the MAGTAF warfighting exercise. And so they offered it to me. I said, okay, I'm going to take the whole division, about 12,000 Marines out there. We, some of us spent about two months out there to do all this. Great exercise. So, you know, I fought 7th Marines and part of 7th Marines was 40 Royal Marine Commando. So they were out like doing reconnaissance, trying to find my CP, you know, do direct action on it or call fires in on it or whatever. And so we knew, and we didn't have air support. Uh, we had no air support for the first like four days of the exercise. So we didn't have anybody flying over us, protecting us from sensors over our head. So a lot of us was trying to make the command nodes as small as they could be, hide them and using camouflage concealment. And we were draconian in how we, you know, we found good positions. We didn't move and we didn't, you know, noise discipline, light discipline, thermal coverings for generators and all this other stuff. And the Marines knew, like we had taken the, the CP out multiple times back in Camp Lejeune to try to get to that level before we went out there. And then when we went out there, month and a half before the exercise, practicing this every day. And so we get to the exercise and I've got uh, Major General Favors, my senior mentor. And so what happens that we find out in the AAR is 40 Commando sees us, they see what they think is a CP node and they have it under observation for four days, but they never do anything with it because they believe it's a, a dummy position. Why? They didn't see a light. They didn't see any movement. And, and so even when they flew, because we overflew our own position multiple times in practice uh, with drones on how to reduce thermal signatures and all this stuff. And we just didn't give them an indication that there were any people there. They knew there were tents and some cami nets, but they, uh, they didn't think it was an active location. So they didn't do anything with it. And Lefebvre tells a story that he's out, you know, his vehicle's, you know, tucked back in a wash under a bunch of nets and he's getting his pack out. He's going to lay down to get some shut eye. It's about two in the morning. He breaks out his flashlight to see something, to pull something out of his pack that he uh, needs before he goes to bed. And he is literally, you know, accosted and dressed down by this Lance Corporal. Like, who the f you think you are? Put that goddamn light out. You're going to get us all killed. <laughs> God damn it. You know? And so That's his awesome. point was, he like the next day goes, your message, they got it. These guys are living this. They are buying in. They are committed to this. He goes, I almost got my ass kicked last night for putting a white lens flashlight out. He goes, and I haven't seen that level of field discipline in quite some time. You know, you're, you're on to something. So that's why you do it. But, you know, it's hard. You got to take some lumps as a leader to get to that point. The other thing is, you know, we shouldn't shy away from difficult problems. You know, the other part of my leadership thing was what we did with post-traumatic winning, bringing Mike McNamara every Marine division. I think we brought him there three or four different occasions. But my first three months in the division, I had five suicides and I'd never had a suicide in any unit I commanded ever before. So I'm like, what's going on? So you bring all the mental health people in, they have no answer. They're great people. They're working their butt off, but they're overwhelmed by the problem. 
And so I asked Mike, who had done all marine radio, and he had he he was coming to some conclusions, and he's a personal friend of mine, so we talked a lot. And I said, would you, and I had served with him as an IOC instructor. So he came up with a class called the decision that we used to give every, talk about decision-making strategies and models and what lieutenants need to understand about their role on the battlefield. Very kind of avant-garde circa, you know, 1991. So I knew he could conceptually get his hands around this issue. So he basically came up with this three-hour program called Post-Traumatic Winning. And we brought him there the first week. Uh, full full week of January after coming back from the holidays. And we did three sessions a day. Every Marine in the division sat through the three hours. And it was a game changer in the sense that, like I've given a lot of PMEs and even that leadership you know, class, nobody ever said, hey, sir, thank you. That changed my life. Now, no one comes up to the CG. Of course, you know, I'm they're trying to usually get away from me because I'm telling them, hey, why am you shaving? Your PT gear is not appropriate. Get it, you know, whatever. And Marines are coming up going, thank you, sir, for that class. That, that, that was, uh, we needed that. And I appreciate it, uh, you doing that. And so uh, I had guys who said, I didn't want to go to that thing. And I was resentful. And I'm telling you, it changed my life. And, you know, when something bad happened to me a couple months later, I knew what to do because of this class. And I appreciate you forcing us to do this. So I go like 14 months without suicide after that. And so part of it is, it's not just a suicide class. It's a leadership class. It's how to be, to get to know your Marines that you lead, how to find out about their story, telling them, hey, look, if you've had trauma and most Marines have had some type of trauma in their lives, that we, we, attract those people. They seek maybe the family that they never had. So we're bringing them in. We don't know they've had this. We don't look at the clues. And then something bad happens and you, you do the postmortem and it's all crystal clear. But what you find out is if you had only taken the time to truly get to know these people, you might know about these and see the clue, but we don't. And so you try to uh, engender greater understanding about leaders in a division to actually, hey, it's not an onerous requirement to get to know your Marines. It's a precondition to good leadership. And so I need you to do these things in order to, for, to, to get a handle on this particular issue. And then I didn't have another, uh, I didn't have another suicide until COVID, you know, came up. And then, we, you know, we started isolating people. And I think mm-hmm. that contributed something. And we had to stop all these type of group collective kind of uh, sessions that we were doing that uh, assisted us and trying to get after that very difficult problem. But it's all interlinked. I mean, if you want to retain somebody more, the first thing that you got to do is they got to know you care about them. Right. Individually and organizationally care about them. To care about them, you got to know them. You got to be present in their, their life. And so, you know, there's a great leadership YouTube video from, uh, Nick Saban, and I use a lot of clips from it. I think it was out of 2015, and he was talking to a bunch of insurance or salesmen or whatever. But he said, he goes, if you want to build an elite organization, a truly elite organization, and Alabama football is the most elite college football program in the country. I don't like Alabama, but hey, results speak for themselves, right? Right. So 
he said, first of all and foremost, you got to have a vision. As a leader, you got to be able to articulate a vision of where you want the organization to be. Then you have to explain a process where individuals in this organization, this is what the organization stands for. This is where we want to take it. Here's your role, and this is what you have to do to make the organization successful. That's the process. And then, but the critical thing he says is you got to have the discipline to do it every day. And he goes, you know, and he defines discipline as, you know, he goes, you've already done it probably a couple times a day. There's things that you know you're supposed to do, but you don't want to do them, but you make yourself do them. And then there's other things that you want to do, but you know you're not supposed to do, and you don't do them. And in that space is kind of the moral standard code that you live by that the organizational structure says, this is how we operate for the good of the collective. That defines that space. And everybody holds everybody else accountable to that level of performance. That's where elite organizations are born and developed and sustained. And so you got to have a vision. You got to have a process to achieve the vision that's articulate, that's simple, that everybody can understand. But then you have to do the process. And it's hard. Because you know, he talks about coaches want to be friends with the players. They don't want to enforce this. He goes, you know, and he says, uh, but then he talks about, you know, I got five guys on the team. They never go to class. They loaf on the football field. He goes, I spent all my time with them. You spent all your time as a leader with the people who don't want to do the process. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you have to make sure that you you always spend time with the, with the other 98 people on the team that are doing everything you're asking them to do. And you need to have a relationship with them as well. So you can touch their soul. You can help them achieve their goals, aspirations, and dreams. And they in turn will help you collectively maintain those standards and collectively keep the organization on the path to define success that the vision has stated for you. So uh, when I saw that whole thing, I'm like, aha, that's what I'm trying to do. And so that's how I developed this class that kind of explained this. And so I articulated the vision. Here's the process. And it's all about discipline. And then I brought other people to talk about discipline, little vignettes and audio clips. And, you know, everybody from, you know, Jocko Willick to P.K. Van Riper. And, you know, it's like, it's not just me saying this. This is general consensus of military professionals. This is important. This is why I'm making it important to you. And so, you know, that was a tough issue. There were rocky roads. I could have done it a lot better by just having this first lieutenant in there. He said, sir, I could have done all this. We could have had all those news articles beforehand already, you know, embargoed, launched, you know, all those classes done. Then you put the letter out. Everybody understands it's no big deal. Yeah, it was It was a point I was making with uh, General Heckle again. I know you haven't heard it because it hasn't come out yet, but by the time everybody's listening to this, that will already be out. We were talking about how to you know, what does combined arms look like and how much of combined arms is non-kinetic now and your comstrat, your example that you just used about not bringing comstrat in, that's an example of not combining your arms and considering the non-kinetic side of combined arms. It's just a, it's a great, it's a great lesson. And and I think, you know, we're at our wrap up point here, sir, but I I do want to highlight, come back to one thing you said about Mike McNamara and his post-traumatic winning. I've recently become better friends with my, I spent my time as a Lieutenant hiding from you and Mac and 
Cross the teeny and Kenny and you. I, I just, you know, I have my face paint on all the time because I didn't want you guys to ever see me out there. I've recently become reconnected with him and I went over to eighth and I, when he was doing oh, yeah. his okay, most great, recent, right. Great. And I didn't get a chance to, to actually see it. I still need to carve out the time to do it. Cause like you said, it's three hours. But when I walked up to him to say hi, he had a line of Marines standing there doing exactly which with what you just said, which was this, this changed my life. You know, this was three hours I didn't want to do. And the last person to walk up to him was, and, and I'm going to, I don't know the billet for this, but he, he was the senior musician and some, uh, the equivalent of a master guns, except I never knew this, but instead of the bursting bomb, he's got a musical instrument in the middle. <laughs> I, I never, I had never seen that before. Right. He's, right. Just, he's in camis and he's got him on his collar. I'm like, wow, what is that? And he was saying the same thing to Mike. He was saying, you know, this has just been so valuable to all the Marines. So everybody listening to this, if you have the opportunity to bring Mike in, and, and talk post-traumatic winning. And if you're going to, if you see it and you're, you're told to go to it, go to it, it'll change your life. So just, and I'll put some, uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for uh, his website and all about that too. But I appreciate you surfacing that, sir. Cause I, I do think it's, it's important to talk about. I've personally lost more Marines that I know to suicide than combat. I got a lot of theories about why this generation views that as an acceptable alternative. But the fact of the matter is you know, we, like I say, we tend to attract people that are damaged, whether they want to self-heal through this organization that, you know, we display as truly exceptional. We care about you. You're going to have, you're joining a family. And then, you know, our obligation as leaders in this organization is to give them that. Right. And I always tell junior officers and NCOs and staff, you're, you're a father figure, whether you want to be one or not. And that, you know, you got to love them like you would your own child, all of them, even the ones that are like standing before you at the position of attention for office hours, you have to love them. And so it doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. What I used to do as a, I mean, as a regimental commander, especially for, you know, drug and, and, and alcohol offenses, is I would turn them on to Blackjack Matthews, who uh, was a Professor at uh, Marine Corps War uh, at Marine Corps Command Staff College, but one of the best battalion commanders when when I was a young lieutenant, Second Marine Division, revered officer. But he had a drinking problem and he got dried out. And he used to go around the Marine Corps and give this alcohol speech. But he was connected to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and a lot of different organizations. So I would I would hold Marines accountable, and then I would say, okay, part of your punishment is you're going to go in the next room. And you're going to speak to a person, Blackjack Matthews, about the circumstance that, that uh, resolved around you being here, okay? And he's going to talk to you. And you're going to listen. I'm not saying you have to do what he says, but you got to hear him out. And because what you're trying to do is, is change behavior by this anyway and, get, and help them. And so I remember it happened uh, frequently where you'd, you'd be around the CP and people are doing you know, extra police duties. And they would come up and say, hey, sir, can I talk to you for a second? Yeah. And I, hey, thank you for, you know, tuning, in, tuning me into this guy. I'm already connected with AA and he got me a coach or a, a mentor and, and I'm, I'm going to meetings and it's really helped me out a lot. I just want to thank you for doing that. Well, that's okay. great. I mean, that's what I call the good stuff of leadership. Mm -hmm. When you touch their soul and you change the trajectory of their life and you truly make an impact. And you get the text or a comment like that or a letter in the mail that, you know, tells you, thank you, sir, for doing X because 
I'm this now and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. And you don't really realize that you had that impact because a lot of times you touch souls, you don't even know you're touching them. Right. Uh, and when you get when you get told by people that you touch their souls, that's gold. That's something you keep forever. I, right. I have this file, I call it my keep forever file. And whenever I get something like that, I screenshot it. I keep that stuff. It's valuable. Yeah. So. so when you're ever feeling bad about yourself, you go open that thing up and read it and know, I've made a difference in, in, in this time, this lap around the earth. Right. And uh, that's the important part is the people and, you leave behind and what they, and your impact on them. That's important. That's very true. Sir, your staff is going to kill me if I keep you any, any over. I know they're probably standing in the background yelling index, uh, but I, I really appreciate your time. I know the listeners do. This was a really great opportunity to hear some of your vignettes and, uh, you know, over 36 year career, I, I know you have three hours more you could probably share, but I appreciate the short time that you spent with me and, uh, and helping me out with my project. So thanks again, sir. Well, thank you for what you're doing because I'm passionate about leadership. And I think it's uh, what I tell people, and I believe this, is that, you know, we talk about relative combat power analysis, you know, leadership is, is part of that. And we always give ourselves a check plus and, you know, yay. But I, I actually believe that leadership is the most important element in generating combat power, period. And I think you're seeing that in Ukraine today. I mean, a modern example of it, a, a, the better led force where service members know leaders care about them, that service members know their leaders are professional. They know how to employ all the elements you know, of modern combined arms. They, they have trained them well. They employ them within their capabilities. They care about them deeply and take care of them. Those organizations have mu- can generate much more combat power than poorly led organizations that are also poorly trained. And so I just think that's, we don't put enough emphasis on that. So your podcast is certainly helping us do that or highlight a very, very important element, uh, role that officers and staff NCOs and NCOs fulfill for our Marine Corps. And it, it's, it, it's a vitally important issue. So I thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, sir, for that. I've really appreciate it. So this is a great chat. Yep. Until next time, sir. Yep. Love it. I've had a great time. Great. Thanks again, sir.